0: Today's reading is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's just pray together. Yeah, Father, the the text we just heard read is um, probably abrasive to many of us. And yet, Uh, I think it's abrasive in a way that we don't actually quite anticipate. I think the abrasion and the confrontation is actually greater than what we think at first glance. Father, would we this morning see your good news for what it truly is, good news? Would we delight in your good news as a church? And would we, filled with your spirit, clear on who we are as your people, act like this good news is in fact true? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is good to be with you this morning. Uh, My name's Jake. I'm part of the team. If you're new or visiting, I would love to meet you, get to know you. Uh, As you can tell, you came on a fun Sunday. Uh, We're talking about interesting and difficult things in the life of the church. But that's what happens when we preach through God's Word, is that we don't get to choose and pick what we want to talk about. Uh, God's Word tells us what we get to talk about and how we're going to talk about it. And so I'm excited to unpack it with you. I want to begin this morning by suggesting that in war, deception is a powerful weapon. In war, deception is a powerful weapon. Uh, One of the unsung heroes of World War II was the 23rd unit, uh, otherwise known as the Ghost Army. And the Ghost Army was not armed uh, with rifles and artillery and tanks and landmines, no, The the Ghost Army in the Second World War was armed with inflatable tanks, inflatable cannons, and inflatable planes and trucks. Uh, The weapons of the Ghost Army were loudspeakers simulating uh, the sounds of advancing troops and and radio messages intended to mislead the enemy. And the Ghost Army, by all accounts in the Second World War, was a tremendous success. See, the Ghost Army and their weapons of deception played a big role in the success of of D-Day. The Ghost Army, it was their deception with their inflatable weapons and their simulated war noises that allowed the American and allied troops to cross the Rhine River into Germany in March of 1945 with, with little resistance. In war, deception is a powerful, potent weapon. Did you know that you're at war this morning? That you're at war? Now, now you'd be forgiven for glossing over what I just said. After all, if you've been around for a while, you, you've heard a preacher say a time or two before that you're at war. Uh, to quote 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, to, to encourage you to fight the good fight of the faith. You've heard in Colossians 3, 5, to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You've heard 1 Timothy 1.18 before. Paul urging us to wage the good warfare. You'd be forgiven, is what I'm saying, if you just gloss over what I just said. I'm likely not the first pastor to tell you that there is a cosmic war for your soul and for my soul, a war between the domain of darkness and the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That's Colossians 1, 13. But this war is not the stuff of ancient folklore or movie epic. It's not a war that's true for some Christians and not true for other Christians. It is true for all of us this morning that you are at war. And in war, deception is a powerful weapon. And so here's how our text comes to us this morning. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 comes to us this morning like like a bucket of cold water, uh, shocking us awake. Waking us up out of our slumbering stupor. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 comes to us like a shocking revelation at the end of the film. Suddenly everything makes sense in view of what we just learned. Our text does all of this because it reveals to us this morning, to you and to me, the great deception used by our enemy in our great cosmic war. And our text, I'm so excited, can you tell? Our text tells us two things this morning, two things the world, the flesh, and the devil have lied to us about our whole lives. It tells us two things, ready? It tells us first, how bad sin is. And second, it tells us how good the gospel is. How bad sin is and how good the gospel is. And so open your Bibles, have them there. I have my water with me. I don't know why I look down. Have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. And the first point is this. How bad is sin actually? Yeah, can I get that, Maze? Sorry. Thanks, darling. How bad is sin actually? Actually, how bad is it? Uh, We should pick up the point where Daniel left off last week. If you're new to this series, we're going through 1 Corinthians, and we saw last week that the church in Corinth uh, was a particularly litigious church. They liked to, and they got in the habit of suing one uh, another. And matters that should have been discussed and resolved internally had instead become matters that were external, Matters that were being debated and fought over for the world to see. What's worse, these public trials in Corinth were not at all about justice. But as we saw last week, they became spectacles of injustice, of wrongdoing from Christian brother to brother, from sister to sister. So if we can put it like this, the problem is not only that the family is fighting out in the middle of the street. The problem is that the family fight that spilled out into the middle of the street has become dirty. They're not fighting fair. Paul wrote, and we heard it last week in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 8, but you yourselves, church, amongst one another, you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. And so our question this morning, having heard a few weeks back about the man involved in incest, Having heard a few weeks back about a church that is proud of this man's sin, having heard just last week about a church that loves to sue each other, wrong and defraud each other, our question this morning in our text is, so what? So what? Why do any of these things matter? And if they do matter, what what are the consequences of these things? Well, look at verse 9. In verse 9, Paul gives us the answer this morning. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And and we could translate here unrighteous as wrongdoers. So why, O Corinth, is it so wrong that you wrong and defraud one another? Well, don't you know wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's the link to our text this morning. And without a doubt, in a culture that upholds inclusivity at its highest value or as its highest value, this in or out language is abrasive to us. I could feel as Tom was reading this morning, we kind of tightened up, paid attention, we sat up straight, And our horror is only multiplied or amplified when we find out just who exactly Paul considers these wrongdoers to be. What did our text say? What did the Word of God say? Verses 9 and 10. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that's that word pornea we looked at a few weeks back, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This morning, if truth is to prevail and deception is to be revealed, we need to see two things about how bad sin is. And the first thing is this. Sin prevents us from inheriting the kingdom of God. We should be clear, shouldn't we? But what exactly sin is keeping us from? What exactly sin makes us miss out on? Twice in our text, Paul says that the thing lost, the thing missed, the thing not inherited is what? The kingdom of God. See, the kingdom that Paul refers to here is a, a, a coming kingdom. Later in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, Paul He'll argue for the necessity of us having new resurrection bodies. He'll say this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. See, Paul's logic and the logic of the Bible is that there are certain things that belong in Jesus' kingdom. Righteousness, welcome in New resurrection bodies given to us by Christ Himself, welcome in. Unrighteousness, wrongdoing, bodies subject to decay and destruction, it's not fit for the kingdom. See, in Jesus' renewed creation, His kingdom, there will be no suffering in our body and no suffering for our sin. It will be as things were always intended, and it's here that the war will finally be be over. And and we should not miss what, what Pastor Paul is doing this morning. See, Pastor Paul wants our present reality to be so formed and shaped by our future resurrection. That's the logic here. You know, I think, and I could be wrong, I don't think I'm wrong, I think we think far too little about Jesus' kingdom. You know, after Easter, we're going to have a three-week series as a church called Desiring Heaven. And we're just going to think about eternity. Think about Jesus returning. Because I'm convinced that the key to stopping the squeezing of this world for all the happiness it can give us at at any cost, is in fact putting our trust in our hope in a greater happiness to come, in a greater pleasure and enjoyment to come. And you know what? The old English pastor, Richard Baxter, he agrees with me. Or rather, I agree with him. If you don't know Richard Baxter, he grew up in in the 17th century. So this is pre-analgesic, pre-painkiller. Right, The world in England in the 17th century is not like our world today. People were in pain all the time, suffering all the time. England was in a place of political turmoil in the 17th century. And Baxter wrote this book called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. And he wrote this book, did you just, just just count these trials with me. While he was on death's doorstep, lying in his bed convinced he would die, while he was in the throes of depression, His father was in prison. His country was in the midst of a a civil war. And Baxter decided in this moment that he would think about heaven. Is, Is that where we go in our trials and in our suffering? See, Baxter writes, Oh, that we did all heartily and strongly believe that we shall never be truly happy till then. Oh. Oh, that we did all heartily and strongly believe that we should never be truly happy till then. How do we stop squeezing this world for all the happiness it can give us? We put our hope and our happiness somewhere else. He continues, then we should not so dote upon a seeming happiness here. Has life disappointed you? It's disappointed all of us. This future happiness, this future hope, this is what sin threatens to take from us. And, and we should remember that, that just like the, the vice list we saw in chapter 5, Paul's describing here people who become, who have become rather, characterized by these sins. They are known by these sins. These aren't one-offs followed by repentance. No, these are sins that have come to proudly define people. They are worn as badges of honor. And so if you've made peace with sin this morning, and you've minimized it so you'll happily admit it as part of yourself, and not a tear will be shed, do not miss the warning in our text. And I do not want to nuance this for us. I do not want to apologize for what Paul says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, I was a first-year Bible college student. And up until that point in my life, my my, my teenage years and my early adult years had been defined by sexual sin. And and I really thought, you know, this is bad. It's not good, but but it's not that bad. And and my sin had become to me like, like a roommate, right? Like a strange roommate. You don't really talk about them, to really acknowledge them, but you kind of depend on them to pay rent and stuff, right? That, that's how my sin was in my life. And I don't know how this happened, but, but an upper class man made an appointment with me and we went out and at Bible college I went to, there was one restaurant and a restaurant is a generous term for what it was. It was a gas station with a seating area. And we went out and I can remember what booth we were sitting in. And I told him about my, my, my sexual sin. And, and he looked at me And he opened 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, and he read this to me. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I, I never have had at that point in my life, someone speak to me in that way. I, I continued on my life. I got engaged to the lovely woman who brought me my water this morning. I remember that Christmas, I, w- I went home. Uh, my wife went to, or my fiance at the time went to BC. I went back to the promised land, which is Ontario, in case you're wondering. I went back to, to Ontario And and, and there I fell into sin again. And I remember calling my wife to to tell her about the sin that I had fallen into. And, And I remember, this will embarrass her, and I apologize. I remember her saying to me, that's okay. We don't have to get married. Those two moments of the brother sitting across from me in that booth, my wife saying, it's okay, we don't have to get married. It told me in that moment how serious sin was. See, some of us are operating right now sort of on this level where where, where sin is there, but it's not a big deal. And no one has read 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 to you. Well, let me be the first. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Sin prevents us from inheriting the kingdom of God. Second thing. Why is sin so bad? Well, all sin. All sin. Prevents us from inheriting the kingdom of God. And here, at this moment, I want to do two things. Uh, the first is to discuss the, the elephant in the room. For many of us, maybe most of us, may, may, maybe all of us, what happened when, when Tom started reading the scripture this morning was this. Do you remember Charlie Brown's teacher? Wah. <coughs> Men who practice homosexuality, wah wah, 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 right? And so while it's not the only sin listed in this vice list, because of where we're at in our cultural moment, we have to talk about this. And before we get into it, you'll notice I came up with a bunch of books this morning. Uh, That was like, oh no, this is going to be a long sermon. I want to put this on the screen. There is obviously more that can be said about this topic this morning than what I will say. Let's just, can we just acknowledge that? This, this, we can't be here all day today. I want to recommend some good resources to you. Uh, the first is by Sam Albury himself, a same-sex attracted man called, Is God Anti-Gay? Maybe you know of him. He also wrote, wrote a book uh, called, uh, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? It's a great book. Uh, Jackie Hill Perry, uh, Gay Girl Good God, Jackie Hill Perry is a fantastic writer, like, like a powerful writer. would Highly recommend this book. Herself, Wrestling Through Same-Sex Attraction. Uh, along those same lines, Rachel Gilson, uh, "Born Again This Way," uh, wrestling through this stuff, wrote a really good book on this as well. Uh, and then, if you're like Jake, like I, I'm less kind of the testimonial kind of you know reader, I want to know kind of just like what the Bible has to say about this. Uh, I can give you two options here. Uh, the first is sort of like overwhelming, and I want to overwhelm you for a second. Uh, it's this book, "The Bible and Homosexual Practice." Uh, this is sort of the authoritative text on the topic, going through each text. It's very scholarly, it's very heavy. I was reading it this week and I was like trying to understand and and, and figure it out. And if you're like, that's too much for me, let me just recommend this to you. Kevin DeYoung wrote a book called What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality? Which is basically a condensed version of this book. So if you're like, I just wanted to get the Coles notes in 200 pages, here's here's the Coles notes, okay? If you're like, I'm an overachiever, Extra like that, this is for you. Okay, it's also $70, so just so you know. (laughs) Also, and and I would actually maybe most recommend this book. uh, Christopher Yuan uh, is a Chinese-American brother, wrestled with same-sex attraction. Um, He wrote a book called Out of a Far Country. This is the follow-up to that book. It's called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. It's a fantastic book and it sort of blends the two genres of sort of personal testimony and, and theology as well. He, he teaches at Moody Bible Institute. He's a Bible professor, it's, it's fantastic. So, would highly recommend these books to you. All that to say, let's get into that. I'm not gonna say all the things you want me to say, but, but, but here are all these books for you. If you want to take one of these books home, come and take it, except for the big $70 book. Uh, at the end of the gathering, it's my gift to you and our gift to you as a church. We want, we want to bless you. We want to resource you. Uh, the only caveat is you need to pass that book on to someone else. It cannot die on your shelf. Got it? Good. Why us not look at our text? 1 Corinthians 6. Look back there with me. And if you're reading from the ESV, which is the translation that we heard read from, the, the, the phrase translated men who practice homosexuality is actually two words or two phrases in the Greek. And these two words, as you can imagine, have been the debate, uh, the source of debate, much debate recently. While understood a certain way for almost all of church history, these two words have been hotly contested as of late. And the first word is this word, and I'm going to butcher it, and I apologize to Heath and all the other Greek speakers here, is this word malakoi, this word malakoi. A word that has to do with that which is effeminate, or soft. And so some, a minority of scholars, I can't emphasize that enough, a minority of scholars have taken this word to mean that Paul is merely just parroting the patriarchal attitudes of his day, and that he's excluding from the kingdom guys who like fine clothes and romantic comedies. But in its context, When we consider that Paul is talking about things that keep us out of God's kingdom, we should immediately see that that's not what Paul's getting at with this word. It's not how it's being used here. Instead, Malakoi is better understood as seeing this translation by Robert Gagnon, and I'll put it on the screen. And Gagnon, he translates this verse like this. Who will not inherit the kingdom, he says, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, and then he says, nor effeminate males who play the sexual role of females. And so what does Malakoi mean? Paul's talking here about the man who plays the passive role in same-sex intercourse. That's what he's talking about. Again, there is a small and new group of scholars who want to tell you that what Paul's talking about here, really talking about here, is exploitative relationships. That Paul's talking about men sexually abusing boys or male prostitution, but he's not. He's not. Again, he's not. See, as Gagnon writes, for Paul, and really all Jewish literature of that period, so Paul, Philo, other Greek writers, for Paul, all same-sex relationships were inherently exploitative, The moment a man takes another male to bed, he distorts and diminishes the other male's sexual identity as created and ordained by God, regardless of whether the relationship is fully consensual and non-commercial. If there was any lack of clarity with malakoi, the second word in the Greek makes this abundantly clear. It's this word, arsynokotai. And again, I butchered it. But when you don't know how to pronounce something, you pronounce it confidently. So arsynokotai. Heath will correct me later. Now, unlike Malachi, Paul here, with this word, arsenikotai, he's making up a word. He's making up a word. In order to show how the Bible is unanimous from beginning to end in prohibiting same-sex relationship, Paul is intentionally echoing the Greek from two sections of Leviticus, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Leviticus 18.22, we read this. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. He's echoing the Greek from Leviticus 20.13 as well. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. So taken together, this term, arsenicotai, which also appears, by the way, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 18, has the basic simple meaning of men who have sex with other men. That is why your ESV translates these two words as one phrase, men who practice homosexuality. Why? Because it does not matter what role you play in same-sex intercourse. It is not God's design for sex. And those who persist in unrepentance will not inherit the kingdom of God. And before we leave this topic, I want to speak... A hard word and a desperate word. A hard word and a desperate word. And the hard word is this. If you are here this morning and you consider yourself both a Christian and an LGBTQ ally, someone who promotes and champions same-sex relationships, the reality is, according to Scripture, you are no more of an ally of same-sex attracted people than the executioner who leads the guilty by the hand to the guillotine. You are no ally. It is to you that Jesus is speaking when he says in Matthew 18, verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the seat Your response this morning needs to be one of repentance and asking your same-sex attracted friends and brothers and sisters in Christ for forgiveness for how you've confused them, for how you've led them astray. That's the hard word. But there is another word I am much more eager to speak. And there is a group of people this morning that I am desperate, desperate to speak to. And that, those people, are my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ who for as long as they can remember have struggled with same-sex attraction. See, the best translations of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 have this one thing in common. They all have this one thing in common. They all denote a sense of activity, of participating. of of giving yourself over to these desires, giving yourself over to these temptations. This is not, Paul's not saying, that the temptation or the struggle itself is sin, but acting on that temptation, acting on those desires is. See, I am desperate this morning to communicate, to be heard, please hear me, please hear me, to the same sex attracted among us, that this is a place where you can be honest about your struggle, male or female. This has been, is, and will always be a church where the sexually confused, broken, or abused are welcome. Where all of us, all of us, whether our inclinations are to homosexual or heterosexual sex, all of us submit our sexuality to the Lord Jesus Christ. I am desperate this morning to communicate to the same sex attracted among us that your battle is not worse or of a different type than the man or woman tempted to watch pornography, to the man or woman tempted to cheat on their spouse or tempted to get drunk. Do you remember how this point began? All sin, drunkenness, embezzlement, Greed, verbal abuse, theft, all of it, all of it keeps us from inheriting God's kingdom. Then the lie and the deception of the enemy is that sin isn't real. And if it is real, it isn't that bad. And if it is bad, it's not bad enough to keep us from the kingdom. The truth. The the cold water we so desperately need is that all sin prevents us from inheriting the kingdom of God. Sin leads to death. It is that bad. There is, and I'm eager to get there. I'm sure you're eager to hear this. However, another side to the story. To our surprise and to our wonder, Paul begins verse 11, not in the present tense, as if to say, well, Corinth, there's no way out of your sin. You're bad. That's who you are. You're just bad people doing bad things and huh. No, Paul begins verse 11, how? In the past tense. He begins, we read, and such were some of you. Now we have to remember once more that the world uh, to which Paul is writing. Paul is writing to a world that's quite different than the West. See, in the West, some of us, not all of us, but some of us can point to generations of Christians who have gone before us, right? My parents and my grandparents, and, and, and before them, my, my great, great, great grandparents. They were all followers of Jesus. Corinth is this newly planted church. And in this newly planted church, Paul's talking to two people. Two groups, you could say. There's first, on one side, the Jewish people who had, in fact, inherited some sort of ethic, who had, in fact, lived, according to the Torah, to some sort of divine revelation. Right? These are, we could say, the religious people. But most of the church in Corinth was not made up of religious people, but made up, rather, of Christians who came from a pagan background, to whom drunkenness, orgies, infidelity, embezzlement that is just what you do on a Saturday night. That's just how you live. And it's to this last group, these, these ex-pagans, as it were, that Paul is looking to when he says, and such were some of you. These are the irreligious people. You know, the, the, the people who have those, those wild testimonies that, that, that preachers love to shop around, right? Love to say, well, you know, God's real because he, hear this crazy story." right? You've all heard those before. They go on websites. We make videos about them, right? They're they're, they're the wild, crazy testimonies that that, that Jesus saved you from. And it's true. God did save these people. But when Paul begins the next sentence in verse 11, we must now see that the identity which you will pronounce over the Corinthian church is not just for these wild ex-pagans, it's for the religious people as well. It's for all those who grew up following the rules, doing the right thing. Those of us this morning, perhaps you can relate with boring testimonies. Paul says now, both of you, irreligious party animal and religious Pharisee, both of you, those who slept with a lot of people and those who turned down your nose at those who do sleep with a lot of people. He says, both of you, those who got drunk and those who have abstained altogether thinking it would make you right with God. He says, both of you, which really just means all of us. All of us, you've experienced three things. And before I tell you what Paul says to us, I am once more desperate for you to know that your outcome in this war against this sin, your outcome in this war hinges on believing what I'm about to say. Everything hinges on believing what I'm about to say. First, Paul says, you were washed. You were washed. Do you remember, and Heath announced it this morning, do you remember your baptism? Do you remember it? I want you to go back there in your mind. Mine was in like a a warm, climate-controlled little pool at the front of the stage. It's quite nice, actually. Some of you we baptized, you know, a few months ago in the, in the Pacific. It was different. Do you remember your baptism? Paul wants the Corinthians to remember their baptism. He wants them to remember that day when they, they entered the waters. When they, in the presence of the community of Christ renounced the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and were plunged beneath the rushing river, feeling as though they might die, only to be brought back up again to new life. He says to us now, Christy, City, do you remember your baptism? And do you remember, more specifically, all the stuff you brought with you to your baptism? That the things so bad, to think about them now, is to make you wince. To think of the people you hurt is is unbearable. To think of how stupid you looked is too much. To think of how vile, how evil those words were that you spoke would bring about an immovable amount of shame. Do you remember, Christ said, all the stuff you brought with you to your baptism? See, baptism is this amazing gift that helps us see what God has already done. And what did God do? What did going under the waters symbolize? Christ said, it was easy. It's simple. That God washed you from all of your sin. That David's prayer and our prayer was answered. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Because Jesus died for my sin, when we trust that all of my dirt and my grime was paid for on the cross, he washes us. And he doesn't just wash us for the sin we have done, but he washes us for the sin we will do. And as we repent, he he keeps on washing. He keeps on cleaning us up. Jesus keeps on making us new. And so the next time the enemy of your soul whispers into your ears, the next time he brings up the faces and places to shame you and make you forget who you are, you tell Satan, he washed me. He cleaned me. Christ made me new. All those things are true, and yet Christ washed me. I am desperate for us to see this this morning, Christ. Can you imagine for a moment what good news this would have been to a man like Paul? You think you've done shameful things? Paul killed and maimed people. Paul is going to spend eternity with people whose murders he commissioned. Do you think Paul says, well, he washed me, and then he keeps on going with his day? Do you think this is a fleeting thought to Paul? You know, every once in a while, yeah, my sins are forgiven, and it's small to him? No. He washed me. He washed you. Your sins washed away. If you're in Christ, your conscience purified, your soul renewed. I, I want you to know that this morning, Christ. City. Next thing he says, he says, you were sanctified. See, after he washed you, he called you to be set apart. That's what it means to be sanctified. It's this church word for being set apart for God's service. You've been set apart. There has been a break, a fracture, a fissure, a transfer. And though at times it feels like you belong to that old, dark, familiar world, it's not true. It's not. God has called a set-apart people to himself, and that includes you. And now for you to return to your old way of living is as wrong as it would be for a dog to meow or a cat to bark, or a rooster to, to moo. It's just not what you do because it's not who you are. You are set apart, holy, other. And it's not what you do because you figured it out. It's what you do because that's not who you are. Remember, look back at the text. Paul speaks in the language of inheritance, not in the language of earning, right? He does not say, do not be deceived. Do, do you not know? that the unrighteous will not earn the kingdom of God. No, he does not say that. He says, do you not know, do not be deceived, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Flipped on its head, (laughs) why do the righteous inherit God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom? Because inheritance is for his kids. It's for his children. It's not for the stranger. It's for his kids. In Christ, that's who you become, a holy, set-apart child of God. We said this last week, Daniel said this last week, I think I said it two weeks ago. Your Christian life depends on your increasing growth in the knowledge and the love and the delight of that simple truth that you have been adopted in Christ. You've been set apart. Finally, Paul writes... And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here's one of the biggest lies of the enemy. There are many, but here's one of the biggest ones. What the enemy doesn't want you to know is that the sentencing, your sentencing, has already occurred. It's already taken place. See, many of us, most of us, okay, all of us, are living right now, As if the verdict is still to come. As if God on his throne is humming and hawing about you and me, deliberating over us, thinking, hmm, I'm not really convinced what I'll do with Jake. I'm not sure what I'll do with Heath. I'm not sure what I'll do with Stan. And so we live anxiously, we grow depressed. We grow hopeless. And this is just how the devil likes it. Do not be deceived. (sighs) Come on, this is good news. The trial has already taken place. It's already happened. In Christ, you have been declared not guilty of your sin and been placed in right relationship with God and with God's people. do 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 you see how good the gospel is? My one regret this morning is that no amount of emotion or elocution, no amount of of actions or or props could convince you this morning how good the gospel is. If you get this morning just one-tenth of the goodness of the gospel, surely you will be overwhelmed by it. Washed, sanctified, justified. Here's what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did for you. While you were dead in your sin, the Father sent his Son to save you. Jesus died on the cross for the sins and rebellion of all of us, irreligious and religious alike. And having put your faith in Jesus, his Spirit is sanctifying you. He is washing you. He is whispering to you your true identity in a busy and crowded world. And all the while unbeknownst to us a trial has occurred a trial where your fate was decided a trial where christ stood on your behalf and said all go in jake's place or all go in Maisie's place all go all do what he or she could not do and he did christ city you received a new identity And what the triune God, the God who made the heaven and the earth, wants more than anything this morning is for you to receive and walk in this new identity. If you're here this morning and you do not love or know Jesus, the invitation of the triune God who has always existed and will always exist is for you to walk in a new identity, for you to be made new. For you to experience for the first time the washing, the sanctification, the justification that Paul speaks of here. You have been declared not guilty in the cosmic courts in Christ. Today, he wants you to see how good the gospel really is. And if you've been around a while, if you've been around a while, the invitation is no less strong this morning. It's no less beckoning this morning. Receive who you really are. Act in view of this God-given identity. There is no four steps I'm going to give you leaving today. There is no homework I can prescribe this morning. You're happy about that. It is simply this. Receive who you really are. And I know right now, I know for a fact, that the enemy of our soul is telling you something very different. And I rebuke him in the name of Jesus Christ. Walk in the newness of your identity. Live according to what Christ has won for you. Be who you truly are, who Christ has made you to be. Refuse, Christ City. refuse to live in any other reality where sin isn't that bad and the gospel isn't that good. Do not be deceived. Let's pray. Lord, how do we respond? Father, make us a penitent people. but not penitent because we're navel-gazing or we're despairing over our sin, never moving past our circumstance. Make us a people who in one moment repent and in the next moment glory in your work in Christ. Help us to see. Oh, we need eyes to see. We need ears to hear how good your gospel truly is. Where we are hard-hearted, where our hearts have become stones, break them now in Jesus' name. where we have believed lies of the enemy, of our flesh and of this world, we repent and we confess once more the truth that sin really is what you say it is and the gospel really is as glorious as you say it is in Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, may we be that people. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church East Vancouver and I wanna let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, Let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.